Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles or your devices, if you have them, to Ruth chapter 1. There we're going to continue our reading and our walk through Ruth. Last week, we covered Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, as we looked at how God redeems us from emptiness. This week, as I mentioned, our theme is God redeeming us from bitterness. And we're going to pick it up with verse 14 and continue to the end. If you remember... Ruth, Naomi have both lost their husbands, Naomi, her two sons, and they're right now at a crossroads of Midian, Moab, excuse me, and Israel heading home to Bethlehem. And this is where we pick it up. This is Ruth chapter one. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, We pray that by your word, your spirit, open our eyes so that we might see you, to see you are with us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We tried to kill her. My two friends, my brother, and myself. We tried our absolute best to kill her with kindness. It was just after college, we were all going into the seminary, the four of us to study, to be pastors, to to go into ministry. And we were looking for an apartment to rent just for the few summer months. And 
I don't remember all the exact details, how it worked out, but one of my friends had a, had a friend or family connection where we could sublease someone's apartment for the summer months. The owners okayed it, apartment management okayed it. But what we realized when we moved in is that 20-something-year-olds weren't exactly allowed at this particular apartment complex. It was for people who had maybe a few more years of experience in their life. But this is no problem. This is no problem. We were hardly ever there. All of us worked two jobs. Additionally, we made sure we brought in no guests, no noise. We parked exactly where we were supposed to park. It was all good. Even our neighbors kind of took on this grandparent-like role to us in the summer. And after all, they knew we'd be gone in three, four months. But then there was Judy. Judy lived below us. And Judy was the most bitter woman I have ever met in my entire life. Two of us worked event staff for weddings, so on the weekends we'd get home a little bit later after curfew, and we'd open the door as quietly as we could. We'd tiptoe up the stairs, but as soon as there was a creak on the stairs, Judy would pop out of her apartment door, yell at us at midnight, and tell us she was going to file a noise complaint. So we decided we were going to kill her with kindness. We were going to be as sweet to Judy that summer as we possibly could. When we come out in the mornings and she was checking our license plates and our parking spots to make sure we were parked where we were and she was threatening to have us towed, we said, hey, Judy, we're running out to the stores. Is there anything we could get for you? When Judy would watch us from the front window and make sure that our grill was 30 feet and no closer to the apartment complex, we asked Judy if she had dinner plans and would want a plate of food. When Judy would come out of the hall when we were checking our mail and ask us when our move-out date was at the three-month, two-month, and one-month mark and tell us how she hated having us live there, we told Judy, we love you. We love you, and Jesus loves you. And Judy, we like living here with you. But no matter what, no matter how much sweetness we tried to flavor in Judy's life, she remained bitter. The most bitter woman I have ever met, most bitter person I have ever met in all my life. Do you think of someone like that? Can you think of maybe the Judy in your life? If I were to ask you who's the most bitter person you've ever met, I'm fairly certain you could think of somebody. You got that person? Now I'm going to ask you to take that person and that question and dismiss that. Let me ask you a different question. What causes you to be bitter? What causes you to pent up resentment in your life? Because that's what our narrator wants us to see. That's what God's word in Ruth chapter one wants us to see. That inside all of us, there's a little bit of Judy. And what do you do with that resentment? What do you do with that bitterness when it comes? You look at it. Here's what's going on in Ruth. You know some difficulties had been going on in Ruth and Naomi's life. They're standing at the crossroad between Moab, between Israel. One has lost her husband and two sons. The other, her husband. And what, and what does Naomi say to Ruth? Ruth, who says she's going to cling on to her, to stick with her. 
She says, go away. She says, leave me. Go away. Go back to your people, your gods. Just do what your sister-in-law is doing, but don't stay with me. Ruth's reply. Ruth, standing there at these crossroads, says perhaps one of the most compelling, kind things in all of literature. There's a reason. There's a reason why couples choose this for their wedding verse. There's reason why Christians, literary scholars, and people all over choose these words as precious words. People have called these words that are coming from Ruth, quote, the most amazing declaration of friendship, one of the most beautiful confessions of love in all of literature, the most moving declaration of loyalty. What does Ruth say? She says, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. I could geek out on you. I could tell you how these words are really Hebrew poetry, how there's this cool thing going on called a chiasm that points to the really beautifulness that is in these words that Ruth is laying down for her mother-in-law, Naomi. But it's enough to know this. Ruth, she's giving it all to Naomi. She's opening herself up. She's being vulnerable to Naomi. And what does Naomi say? When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. When she realized that Ruth was serious, that she was determined, well, it's pretty generous, actually. Our English Bibles say, what? That she stopped urging her? You know what it literally says in Hebrew? It says she stopped talking to her. Can you imagine that? <laughs> this walk from Moab back to Bethlehem. Can you picture how awkward this must be as two are walking along? Not even a thank you, Ruth, for sticking with me. Thank you for being here. You know, I've lost so much. At least you're here. You're by my side. Nothing. It gets worse. <laughs> they get back to Moab, excuse me, from Moab to Bethlehem. They're standing there. The town welcomes them back. Hey, can it really be? Is this really Naomi? You're back. What does she say? Look at all the my, I, me's, and my's. <laughs> She's so focused on herself. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Are you picking up on just how uncomfortable this is? We talked about how the book of Ruth is laid out like acts in a play, different scenes going on in a play. So here you have it. You have the actress playing Naomi there standing at center stage saying, the Lord Almighty has caused this to me. Here I am. I went away full and I came back empty. She makes this declaration to the audience, center stage. And yet where's Ruth? <laughs> Ruth is right next to her. This actress playing Ruth looks at her mother-in-law sympathetically as she says this, saying, who am I, nobody? <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> Even the narrator picks up on it. As you watch this, the narrator's voice comes in and says this. <laughs> it's almost funny. 
So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite. And you, the audience, you watch this, you see this, and maybe, maybe you let out a smile or, or a chuckle, but not because it's funny, but because it's tragic. You can relate. You can relate to the irony of this situation. She says she's empty, says she's alone, but there's Ruth. Here we are. In Ruth chapter 1, we have beauty and the beast of bitterness compared right next to each other. And what does it do? The literary genius of it makes you stop and think about the bitterness in your life. What do we say? There's so much that we could say about bitterness, but this morning I want to look at what God's word says and, and how it shows us that Bitterness is bad. It, it does three things to us and our life. First of all, bitterness, well, it hurts us. Bitterness blinds us, and ultimately, bitterness fools us. You saw what happened. She's standing there together, center stage, and she thinks she's all alone. But she's only hurting herself. People have called bitterness, psychologists have defined it as a chronic and pervasive state of smoldering resentment, one that is one of the most destructive and toxic emotions known to the human range of emotions. And you think about this because it's not just emotionally or psychologically or physically that it hurts you. It hurts you spiritually too. Hear me out. There's something that we need to make clear as we, as we talk about bitterness in our lives. And that it's, it's something different than sorrow and pain and grief and having a sad and healthy reaction to these things. That's normal. You should feel that and, and know that that's okay. But bitterness is di- different Bitterness is different in that it is ruminating over resentment. It is allowing anger and bitterness to brew inside of you. And what does it do? Well, the insidious nature of bitterness ultimately steals part of who you are, your personality. That's what it does to Naomi. She changes her name. It's so much ingrained in her identity and who she is. She says, no more. Call me no longer, Naomi. Call me Mara because the Lord... It's against me. What is it? The bitterness, the anger, the resentment that you hold on to from something in the past that, well, now it affects your future. You think about the unfairness that you look at life and you think, you know what, it just should not be like this. It's the anger over the word that someone said to you, maybe in an email, that it's gone, it's done, it's in the past, but yeah, you can't let it go. It's the abuse that happened to you, but it shouldn't have. It's the relationship that went south that's done, and yet now it affects every single relationship that you're in. It's the parent that you lost. Maybe the parent that you never had. It's the health that you want to improve, that you work to improve, but it won't. It just won't get any better. 
Bitterness is different from sorrow or grief or pain because it's something that we grab onto, we hold onto, and we do it. Why? Frankly, we do it because for a moment, maybe just a fleeting moment, it makes us feel better. It makes us feel morally superior to, in some way, that which is causing us the hurt. And we hold on to it, and yet it doesn't help. It only hurts us, and, and it's not so much the externals that are hurting us, it's, it's ourselves. Bitterness hurts us. It hurts ourselves. We do that to us, and before long, it blinds us. You saw it happen to Naomi. Naomi's bitterness drove her to the point where she didn't see that Ruth is standing right there next to her. And why didn't she see Ruth was standing right there next to her, by her side, with her, through all of her pain? Because if she saw it, she'd have to admit that things weren't so bad, that things weren't, after all, turning the Lord against her in every way imaginable, that she had someone, she, she'd have to stop playing the victim card. But she held on to it. And she was blinded to the joys of the Lord that the Lord gives you, yes, for eternity, but we get to enjoy in life. What bitterness does, it, it blinds you to those God has gifted in your life to be ministers to you, to be encouragers to you. Instead, we develop or we deepen in feelings of skepticism, distrust, pessimism towards the very people that God has placed in your lives. And what do we do? We push them, push them further and further, and we, we're blind, blind to the fact that we do that to ourselves and to others. That's, that's what bitterness does. Bitterness hurts us, bitterness blinds us, and ultimately what bitterness does is it fools us, it tricks us. And the reason why is because when you think about what bitterness really is and what you're saying when you're bitter about any situation or circumstance or someone in your life is this. It's God, I know that I deserve some good. God, I deserve good or at least I deserve better than this in my life. That's what you're saying. And yet you heard it. You, we read it before. What do we deserve? As sinners who stand, point our fists at God, shake them and say, God, we deserve more. What do we actually deserve? Ephesians tells us by nature, we are deserving of what? Wrath. By nature, we're deserving of nothing good from God. We're deserving of only his separation. We're deserving only of his punishment. But, but God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, and this is what mercy is. Mercy is not giving us that thing we deserve. Grace is giving us stuff that we in no way deserve. It's because of his mercy that God made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What we should be doing as sinners every moment of our life here on earth is walking around with hands lifted and eyes to heaven saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that which you have given me. Thank you that on top of Christ and making me alive in Christ, even when I was dead in my sin, you've given me family and friends food and drink, house and home, all this and more. Grace on top of grace. You've given me a cherry on top of the Sunday of life. And yet we don't. In bitterness, we point our finger at God's chest and say, we deserve something besides this. It's spiritual entitlement. It's feeling that we are entitled to something 
that isn't ours. Ultimately, it's trying to play God. It's saying, God, I deserve something besides this, and I don't know what you're thinking, but I think that you ought to see it this way. It's what Naomi does. It's, it's her last grasp at any form of control. You saw what she does. She changes her name. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Al Almighty has made my life very bitter. You know what Naomi means? It means sweetness. <laughs> That's what her name means. Naomi knew what her name meant. And so she said, don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara. In Hebrew, it means bitter. Don't call me sweet. Call me Mara. And doing this, she's trying one more time to grasp at something in her life that she has control over. What is that? It's the reaction. It's the reaction, the emotional reaction she has to the circumstances of her life. It's spiritual entitlement. She goes on, she says this, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty Lord has brought misfortune upon me. You know what it means when she says that the Lord has afflicted me? In Hebrew, it says the Lord has testified or bore witness against me. She's presenting a court case. She's putting God on trial Naomi is bringing the judge and the jury, and she's saying, God got it wrong. I'm right. I deserve something else. You see what it does. You see why bitterness is so bad, why it bites so hard, why it is a beast. It's not an emotional problem only. It's a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem because what it does is it hurts ourselves. It blinds us to what's going on around us. And ultimately, it fools us. It tricks us into thinking we're entitled to something or we deserve something. No, we don't. So how do you fix it? How do you fix bitterness? You go ask most experts, and they'll, they'll tell you the first thing is this. You need to forgive. You need to forgive whatever it is that hurt you. And they say that, but what if it's not a person? What if it's just life? What if it's God? They'll tell you the first thing you got to do is forgive. And the second thing you have to do is take action. You have to take action by thinking about what your emotional response are. You need to be more present. You need to be more mindful. That's the trick. That's how you fix bitterness. Try giving that advice to Naomi. Would that have worked? Maybe for a time. Maybe for a time, this is what works. But ultimately, bitterness bites and it doesn't let go. So how do you fix it? Well, this is what I admire about Naomi. I know we've been really hard on her the last two weeks, but at least she does this. Do you see what she does? Naomi admits it. At least she admits her bitterness. Naomi goes back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the house of bread. She goes back to the house of bread. That's what it means. And there in the presence of God and God's people, what does she do? She confesses her bitterness. She admits it before God's people and before God. This is who I am. I am a bitter person. And I could go off on a tangent here. <laughs> I could go off on a tangent and tell you about how this is a picture of what the church is supposed to be. <laughs> it's a place for you. 
It's a place for you to go and be broken, to be bitter, but not stay bitter, not stay broken, but confess it. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it in front of God's people and there receive from God and God's people forgiveness for all your bitterness. But we don't do that. Too often we bring the facade of a picture-perfect self to church and everything's just fine, no bitterness here, and we don't do it. And yet this is the first step that Naomi takes. She confesses, she admits her bitterness before God. That's the first step for you. Go, go to the house of God. Go to the presence of your God. Be with God's people and confess your bitterness. Did you see what that did for her? Do you notice what that did for Naomi? Did it wave a magic wand over her bitterness and everything was a bed of roses after that? She stopped dealing with the pain, the sorrow. No, what does the Lord respond? What does anyone to respond when Naomi admits, confesses her bitterness? They don't say anything. Not a single word. Accusations are levied against God himself. And yet, what does he say? Silence. Here's a literary tactic that mirrors the reality of your own lives, doesn't it? When you're bitter and you confess your bitterness to God, what do you get in return? You get an answer about this is what's going on, the bigger picture in your life. This is why it's happening. Does God come down in a lightning boat and say, this is the action plan that you need to take to get your bitterness right? No. God does not fix your bitterness. But he does you one better. He redeems your bitterness. He redeems your bitterness because he sends you someone, someone to be there by your side throughout all of it. Someone who says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Even death, it won't separate me from you. This is the someone that Ruth points us to. Someone who in your life, someone who's going to be there for you no matter what. Bitter or broken or anything in between. Who is this? Who is this but Jesus? You think about your life, you think about the brokenness and the bitterness that you have. There's so many things in your life where you wonder why does it go this way or why does it go that? And does the Lord give you an answer? No, never. Because the reason God doesn't give us the answer of why everything's going on the way it is is because God is not trying to make us into God-like people like him. He's trying to make us his children. He's trying to make us his children who despite the things in our life, the pain, the sorrow, the grief, the suffering, the things going on, he's trying to make us into people who look at him and say, no matter what, no matter how much information I have of what's going on around me, I have someone. I have someone who is by my side. Listen to these words from Ruth yet again. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. You think about Ruth's situation. Humanly speaking, on that road back to Bethlehem, she had no hope. And yet, against it all, she takes a leap of grace. And there she stays. 
She saw Naomi's life. She saw how faith in God didn't result in a dramatically glorious life, but it actually resulted in tragedy. And yet what did Ruth do? She remained. She remained for God and God alone, not for what God might give, but because he's God, she remained there. And what she does at the crossroad between Bethlehem and Moab is Ruth points us to a different cross, a cross that was carried by her redeemer and yours. The God who says, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Where you go, I will go. A God who said to you, I will be your God. I will be your people and came to us in the flesh to make it so. A God who meant a promise, who made a promise even greater than the one that Ruth made to her mother-in-law and said, nothing, nothing, even death will not separate you from me. This is the God that you have. You have a someone. You don't have all the information. You don't have the big picture, but you have someone whose name is Jesus, who is always, always, always there for you by your side. What are the steps to fixing brokenness? There's no steps except to ask God for forgiveness for all the times that we have been bitter. It's to follow that up with looking to Jesus and watching him take action in your life. There's no action steps for you. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus from beginning to end. It's him and him as the reason alone why we've been redeemed from bitterness. Yet I get it. <laughs> There's a divorcee here or watching with us. There's someone who's lost a child or, or wanting to have another child. There's someone here watching this who has been through hurt, who has been through abuse, who has been through pain. And there's a risk. <laughs> there's a risk that that person listening to this, listening to me tell the story about Judy, to telling the story about Naomi, might think that we're diminishing the pain, the sorrow, the hurt. It's very real. And yet hear me when I say this. The point is not to push those feelings aside, those feelings of real trauma and real grief, but to look and to see that there is someone who holds you. There is someone who holds you tight. Even so, I, I thought about this sermon this week, and I thought, this is hard. This is a hard teaching. Could you say this to your kids, Matt? I know, I know they're young, but would you tell them to handle tough, tough things like this? And then I saw, as far as a toddler is able, what bitterness looks like. This past week, we ended up in the emergency room. And don't worry, it was nothing terribly traumatic. It was, it was two stitches right here on the knuckle of the pinky. Dad left the measuring tape on the table, and someone crawled up and played with it. <laughs> and yet, there was this sense that this was not fair for even a three-year-old. A three-year-old who really has no problem talking, sitting there in the waiting room, not saying a word. And then when I ask him, what, what do you want to talk about? He says, I want to talk about no stitches today. <laughs> I want to talk about no stitches because you have to see there was a backstory to all this. 13 months ago, we were there to get stitches after someone jumped off of furniture and, and needed more stitches. 
And so we're back there, and here's this little boy who does. He walks with this, like, zeal and zest for life, walking as the nurse takes us back to our room and stops, points at the room that we had been in 13 months ago and says, Dad, that's the stitches room, but no stitches today, and then takes a left and walks away from the room. And thankfully, we weren't going back to that room, but the nurse said, no, we're in here. And again, not much has changed. We're back in the same place we were a year ago, except one thing did change. This, this little one has now mastered the English language at least enough to really become fluent with a two-letter word, N-O, and say, Dad, look, I'm shaking my head like this because it means no stitches today. The doctor comes in and says, Dad, it, it looks like we're going to need stitches. Is, is that all right? And the young one answers for me, Nope. No stitches today. And yet it had to happen. I'm not a doctor. I'm not God. But I know enough and you know enough to know that two stitches, they're going to fix this. They're going to make it better. And even though there's going to be pain, there's going to be trauma, there's, there's going to be real sadness that's about to occur, you know it's going to make it better. <laughs> and so two nurses come in to hold down a three-year-old's pinky because, no, not just one person could do it. And during that time, the stitches start, and so do the tears, and so does the shouting. So I did the only thing that, that any parent would do, and I grab him. I grab him tight, I put him on my lap, and I hold him. And I make sure that the only thing he can see, I gently turn his face towards mine. And so he sees my eyes and just me. And if he heard it or not, I don't know. But I told him the only thing that I could think to tell anyone in that point, that it's going to be okay, because I knew it would. I told him that I loved him. I told him that no matter what happened here, that this is going to work out. It's going to be okay. I would never do anything to cause pain to you. I would do nothing nothing to harm you. Trust me in this. And don't you see, that's what the narrator is showing you here in this story. What do you know during your pain, during your grief, during your trials? You don't know what it might be like, what it might feel like, or when the end will come, but you know this. You have someone who is grabbing you tight, who is holding you to his chest, pointing your eyes at you to say those words to you. I will not leave you. I promise you I will be here for you. No matter the pain, I promise you that somewhere, somehow in Christ, this will be made right. This will be okay. The pain will not last forever. I am working everything out for your good because I love you. You're my child. That's what Ruth wants to show you. The end of Ruth, the end of this first act wraps up this way. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You remember why she left? Ruth left, Naomi left, Bethlehem that is, because there was a famine, because there was nothing left. And what's beginning? She's beginning to get filled. Bitterness, it hurts us. It blinds us, and ultimately it fools us. But you know what Christ for you does? Christ with you does? What bitterness hurts, he heals you. He heals you by giving you everything that you need. What bitterness blinds you to everything else in your life, what the gospel does, it opens up your eyes, eyes of faith to see you are never alone, that there is by your side Christ all the way through the darkest valleys. 
<laughs> and, it, and it stops the foolishness. It stops the trickery and you see truth. You see as there's someone who gives and gives to you, who fills you. The bar- barley harvest was beginning. Hope began for Ruth and Naomi. And hope begins for you because while things might be bitter, while things might be bad, you have someone who in all things will make it sweet. Amen. Amen.